So, a very, very quick recap. We were looking last week at this kind of thorny issue which appears uh, as we've been looking through the, uh, this particular letter. We're suddenly confronted in the first verse, verse 18, with that word which is a springboard for all sorts of discussion. It starts with the word slaves. Uh, and Peter is writing to a group of people uh, who are by heritage, they are Jews, uh, they are living, there, living in um, Asia Minor, which was, is now modern-day Turkey, in that kind of bridging location between Europe and Asia. That's, that's one of the interesting functions that Turkey has. It sits between the two. Uh, they're, they're living in that location. They're away from their Jewish heritage, but they've been living there it, for some time. They are, they are established there. It's where they live. It, it's their home. Uh, and they have been uh, grabbed. I think that's the best word that we could use. They've been grabbed by the message of Jesus in their minds, in their hearts, in their very being. They've been compelled to become followers of Jesus. Now, that trajectory is interesting because uh, from a Jewish heritage, they've been convinced of their background, and now they become convinced that Jesus is the one who has been promised the one who fulfills all that is written in the Old Testament, the one who comes and delivers that uh, ongoing delivery of salvation into this world as God has always planned. That's their conviction. That's what they have been convinced of. So they are the believers in Jesus, the people of God, living in their context. Uh, they are the dispersed, the diaspora, they are Jews who have been dispersed across the Roman Empire in this particular location, and they've come to faith in Jesus. The question is, how, therefore, do we live? That's the question that they were facing. In this particular context, how, therefore, do we live? That question can immediately be taken and, and can be confronted and, and become compelling for us as well today, can't it? It's exactly the same relevant question for us today. How therefore should we live in this world as we are now? Because we, we don't, I was watching a program during this past week, uh, an undercover investigation into modern day slavery in this country. It was absolutely shocking, it was appalling, it is, a, it is a travesty that in the 21st century we still have the opportunity for that kind of thing to go on in our country. It's just amazing, it's amazing on so many levels, it's tragic that uh, human beings are willing and able to continue to behave in those abhorrent ways uh, towards each other, it's shocking that people can then feed off that by providing all sorts of kind of ancillary services for the undercover slave trade. It is shocking that we live in that context. But there is a difference, isn't there? We live in a society where that is illegal. <laughs> that is illegal. It goes on. It reveals, if you like, that kind of deep darkness of the human heart. I was also watching a fascinating uh, um, program 
uh, a documentary on the, uh, the life of William Golding. William Golding wrote Lord of the Flies in the 1970s, 80s. He was interviewed by Melvin Bragg. It was a replay of that particular interview. Fascinating. I mean, if any of you have read Lord of the Flies, that's a fascinating story. He was questioning, what, what would it be like if, if a group of schoolboys ended up on, on a, a, a deserted island and they had to effectively recreate for themselves society? William Golding's uh, conviction was this, as it played out in the story, that what is exposed ultimately is the darkness of the human condition. As he was uh, interviewed by um, Melvin Bragg, I found it fascinating the way that he described what he believed was the root condition of humanity. He's not a believer in the Bible. He wasn't a believer in the idea of uh, original sin, the idea of what the what the Bible presents to us, the problem of our human condition. He, he wouldn't hold to all of that, but what he did say was this. I am convinced that deep down there is a blackness, there is a darkness. I, think, I would suggest to you that the issue of slavery in our country is another way in which we can see that that is our root problem, even when it becomes illegal. But the difference, of course, is that we are, write, we are reading in this particular context at a point in history where it is not illegal. Slavery is not illegal. And so we've got a moment in time where the Bible relates to a particular culture and we live in today's culture. And the problem comes in terms of, well, how do we move from that to where we are today? I want to look at some of the interesting ways in which Peter writes. I want to then look at the way we have um, created uh, problematic interpretations of the Bible. And then finally, I want to think about how we might get really practical about this. So let's firstly, let's have a look at this whole issue of what Peter is actually saying. Uh, and then we'll think about our true liberty, our true liberty. Verse 18, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. I, the first thing, I was doing some work on this this week, the first thing that is absolutely fascinating is the word that Peter uses at that particular moment in his writing. He has already used the Greek word for slaves as we understand slaves. Uh, the, the, the oppressed, if you like, or the ones who are in bondage. He's used that, uh, uh, which we create that picture of bondage and enslavement, and he, he uses that word earlier on in this chapter and he describes the freedom and liberty that comes from being bonded to God. Slaves of God, he describes those who believe in Jesus. It's a, bond, it's a bonding, it's a tying, but it is one that is liberating and brings freedom and joy and satisfaction. He's already used that word. 
But the word that he uses here is different. Oikothos. It's a different word for slavery. It is a word which specifically describes house slaves or house servants. That's fascinating, isn't it? He's already used slave, so we know that he knows the word. But now he uses a slightly different word. So I think, what's going on? Maybe if we get a handle on that, we can, we can help to understand a little bit uh, of what's going on. Interestingly, the house servant was the second highest privileged rank of slave in the Roman Empire. Generally, there were five, if you like, levels of slavery. There was the imperial or the public slave. That was somebody who was owned by the emperor or by the public body, and they tended to hold very senior roles, very high-profile roles. Then there was the household servant, precisely the category of people that Peter addresses in this description at this point in time. Then there was the urban craftsmen and service providers, winemakers, uh, wood craftsmen, metal craftsmen, all of that kind of thing. Then we move into the fourth category, which would be uh, people working in agriculture. And then the final uh, gradation of slave was the ones who were condemned to mining. Uh, and they would be the ones who are, are kind of considered um, the lowest of the low, the ones who would very often be convicted slaves who have um, perhaps escaped or uh, rebelled against their master, and the master had the right to, to define them as that lowest category and for them to be in a position of slavery which gave them no opportunity for personal freedom. Isn't it interesting that Peter writes to a particular group of people who perhaps in that particular society would have considered themselves maybe more liberated, maybe more free than some of their other fellow slaves. People who would consider themselves to be in a position of uh, relative privilege And yet look at what that relative privilege looks like. He says that it is possible that even though you are in that position of relative privilege, it is possible for you to have a master who might beat you physically. And essentially he says, what is the good? Why is it of benefit to you? Why is it... um, a credit to you, in verse 20, if you receive a beating for doing wrong. Actually, the credit is when you are oppressed for doing good. That's an interesting discussion that I think he opens up. It's that that kind of way in which we, day to day, create for ourselves our status for life. The way, we, the way we see ourselves. This particular group of people might have felt as though they were in a better position. And then there's this sudden breaking in of something which is just 
unjust. I'm getting a beating for doing good, Peter reminds them. Actually, the good that we're talking about is being representatives of doing good for the sake of the gospel, considered to be believers in Jesus and living in a particular way. That might mean that you end up uh, unjustly being oppressed. It got me thinking, well, how else does that begin to touch on the way that we live today? I think straight away this issue of slavery opens up. I I read a really interesting um, article by Tim Keller where he's discussing the issue of slavery and he makes it really clear that uh, slavery in Roman times had all sorts of gradings like this, the way that we see it, uh, and, and we think that we are freed and liberated from all of that. Uh, And then he makes the point that maybe the way that we shape our lives, the way that we consider our, our status or who we are as people, we actually create for ourselves our very own slavery. He's writing, interestingly, in Manhattan, surrounded by people who think themselves so incredibly free. I, I, I am earning, you know, six-figure with a pretty high number at the front, salaries. I've got bonuses that are seven figures. I'm living such a free life. And he says, Really? Really? Are you that free? Or actually, are you living in another kind of slavery? Who owns you? How free really are you? And there is that dawning reality that that freedom doesn't come simply by a social definition or a legal definition. The abolition of slavery does not mean that none of us are therefore enslaved. Actually, what we recognize is that we create for ourselves all sorts of slavery. Where who we are is defined not by freedom in Jesus and the true life and the fulfilling life that he defines for us, but rather we define ourselves by maybe our job, maybe our salaries, maybe our careers, maybe the things that we've achieved, maybe a certain relational connection. Maybe maybe it's being seen to be doing good in all of the right social places. And then suddenly we realize that those very definitions that we think are so freeing and so liberating actually become the very things which ensnare us and enslave us. Because we become servants of those very things. 
you earn a seven-figure salary in bonuses uh, and a basic salary in the six figures, what do you serve? I'm not saying everybody. There are those who can earn that and it is... They are truly, freely liberated in Jesus. But isn't it so possible because we know our true human condition that that becomes the very thing that I serve and I sacrifice all sorts of other things to serve that. Is that any longer serving me or, is it, or am I serving that? What kind of structures of slavery do we actually create for ourselves? There was somebody who wrote in, in the time, around the time that this, was, this letter to the, uh, Peter's letter was written, he wrote a definition of slavery. A slave is, a slave has no persona, is the opening statement. He has no personality, he does not own his body, he has no ancestors, no name, no cognomen, no goods of his own. Cognomen, that idea of um, identifiable achievement, something which you stand for. He, 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 that's, that's the definition that was written in the time that Peter wrote this. You're stripped of anything that is truly you. You have no persona. In other words, all that you do is found not in you, but in that thing, that mastery, that ownership, which you are serving day by day by day by day. Your definition is not you. Your definition is that. And we say, therefore, we are free. No, no. Therefore, all that we do is we swap what we are enslaved to. We create new definitions of slavery. One might be imposed, but this one is created. And the very point that Peter has made a few verses earlier is this. You need to remember that you are freed in Jesus. Your life is free. He's writing to a group of people who, when you look at them, you would say, but you're not free. You're not free. You are owned by your slave master. You are owned by, maybe, the company, the person who ultimately owns that mine, or the person who ultimately owns that field, or the person who ultimately owns that metalworking uh, facility, whatever it might be, you are owned by that. You're not free. And Peter says, no, you are free. You are free. Because actually your freedom creates for you all of those things that you don't have. It creates for you an identity. It creates for you a heritage. It creates for you a name. It creates for you a future. If you are robbed of all of those things, if you have no persona, it means that you can disappear off this world and you will never, there is no trace of you. And we'd say, well, yeah, that happens to all of us. But Peter says, but if you think eternally, if you consider yourself to have an eternity in Jesus, 
then suddenly all of those things that you think you don't have, you truly do have. You have an eternal inheritance. You have, you bear an eternal name. You live with an eternal identity. You live with a future. And he's saying all of those things to a group of people who don't look as if they're free. Now, how do we move that idea to where we are today? Well, the first thing that I would say is we immediately can see that we might not live with literal, legalized slavery, but we do create our own. And while ever we are living day to day, week by week, month by month, year by year, serving that which we think is going to give us freedom, we end up enslaved to it. And it ends up always, always, always ultimately letting us down. You say, well, surely not. I know somebody who they served, they served money, and it gave them the most amazing, free, liberated life. It was an amazing life. And they had an, a retirement, an early retirement, and they were able to go on all sorts of amazing cruise. They had fantastic cars. They had houses and properties all over the world. They had this incredible freedom. And they lived a great life, and they got to the end of their life, uh, and they didn't suffer at the end of life. And you look at that life and you say, that is such an amazing life. Surely serving that was worthwhile. And you would say, but if that's all that they were serving, then it, it lets them down in eternity, doesn't it? It fails them in eternity. And so Peter is encouraging them to say, it's only worth serving something which is truly going to set you free. Which is truly going to give you the freedom that you're actually looking for. And he says, that's Jesus. Who came and he served in exactly that way. In the way that we're describing a sacrificial serving. He says it in the reading that we've just read. He gave himself he didn't respond to the insults. He, he served. And in human terms, it looks like he lost. But he didn't. He gained everything. He gained the name of God in heaven eternally. I will give him a name which is above every name. It, it, of course, Jesus had that name eternally. But it was recognized eternally in, in, in time. <laughs> As we see that Jesus suddenly becomes, becomes the one who God says, nobody can bear my name. Nobody can take my name. And then suddenly there's this turnaround where Jesus takes the name of God. And he becomes the name that nobody can take. The name that is above every name. And then he says to you and me, he says, if that is the eternal Jesus then he's able to secure your eternal destiny. Therefore, it is worth being enslaved 
to him. It is worth it. He, he did, Peter shamelessly uses the, the true definition as we see slave. He uses the true definition of slavery for being a slave to God. He says that's worth it. Because worshipping that, giving yourself to that, is something which gives you true freedom. Now, let's have a look at, secondly, well, how, how might we now take this on? Why did we read Jeremiah? Because somehow we've got to get really, I think we've got to get really practical with this. That, that's great, but, you know, how do we do day-to-day stuff? Actually, Jeremiah has written to a group of people who are not in that dissimilar a status to the people who Peter is writing to. In the pre, in a letter or a, a prophetic writing which had been established as, the, as God's word would have been well known by all of these people. Jeremiah, we read this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. We'll open with that. He's saying to them, just, just go and live in exile in a way which is settled. Live amongst, live a real life, live part of. Do that in a way which is real. And then later on he says something even more amazing. He says this, And while you are there, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you'll prosper. He's saying to them, look, when you are there, seek the good of those around you. Doesn't that sound remarkably like what Peter is writing? He's saying, do good to those, do good in that environment. One is an absolute exile of God's people. Now there is the dispersed people, and he's saying, just live Good lives. How might that look? I think, I think it looks like these couple of things as we close. I think it is an acceptance, a continuing acceptance of the status of society in which we find ourselves. As exiles, there is no opportunity to demand freedom. As those who are dispersed, there is no opportunity to demand change around. As slaves, at that point in time in world history, there is no opportunity to demand freedom. That doesn't stop you from living good lives. That doesn't stop you from living gospel-shaped lives in the society that you are in. What about today? 
I think it looks like this. We are in a society. We are now in a democratic society. We have the freedom and the liberty to look for the good in all sorts of ways and opportunities. But do we sometimes get in trouble when we live as believers, when we believe that we have a right, a right to certain things? A right to live in a particular way. A right to demand certain things. Here's a group of people who who have no rights. But it doesn't stop them doing good. We live in an environment now, we live shaped with this script before us where I would suggest one of the ways in which we think about this is the first step is to say, we have, we cannot expect and we cannot demand and we cannot assume that somehow because of our uh, Christian heritage to this country that we can demand certain rights. We live in society. It's God, godliness as a wider society is going to ebb and it's going to flow and it's going to it's going to be positive at times, it's going to be negative at times, but how do we live day to day, day to day? We seek the good. We seek the good. We do good things. We live good lives. There are moments when living good, good isn't defined by society around us. Good is defined by our faithfulness to God. And our love for those around in exactly the same exhibiting way that Jesus lived. And therefore we live, at times, we're going to be confounding people. They're going to not want to listen to certain things. And yet we continue to do good. And it's Wow. What we don't do is we don't grab the Bible and drag it kicking and screaming and use it to absolutely lay down our own either presuppositions or even our own prejudices. We don't do that. Genesis chapter 9, 24 to 27, if you want to have a look at it later on. Genesis chapter 9, 24, 27 was used to condone African slavery into the Americas. It was a twisting of the Bible. It was a way in which the Bible was being used not, not to do good, not to show love as Jesus showed love, It was a way to support prejudices. It was a way to support financial structures. It was a way to support godlessness. And I would say that that is another warning to us. That we are to live continually thinking, continually shaping. What does true love look like, therefore? What does true care look like, therefore? What does true liberation, therefore, look like for those who are oppressed? What does true faithfulness in all of that to God look like today?
so that we don't take God's word and drag it kicking and screaming to support prejudices, as has tragically been the case in the past. And maybe that's one way in which we can see that as soon as we hit a word like slaves in the New Testament, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to head down a really unhelpful direction.